So good morning. How's everybody? I just thought I'd check. It's been so long since I've been up here to preach. I thought I'd see if things were still the way they were. Uh, all right. Well, you look like you're out there, so maybe you will be before it's over with. So take your Bibles. Go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you know anything at all about the book of 1 Corinthians, that when the pastor announces that's his text, you want or you should want to bristle in self-defense. Because the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul's velvet brick, and sometimes not so velvety that brick is, as he speaks into what is perhaps Scripture's most unhealthy church. It was approximately 20 years ago that the then First Lady of the United States wrote a book and went on a tour talking about some of the intent of that book. I do not intend this to be a political statement at all. But I think the statement itself through the years has held some truth, for me at least, and it bears some scrutiny by us. That first lady was Hillary Rodham Clinton. Some of you are offended that I would call her name in church. Some of you are not. But as a first lady, this tour went out and she did a number of interviews and she was famously quoted and sometimes misapplied. The quote And the title of the book was, It Takes a Village. Now, I I think that there is a certain amount of circular reasoning that occurs with that title and with the concept behind it. The basic intent of it, I think, is that we as individuals, and because that was a children's book, it was applied into that and misapplied in a lot of ways, but... Uh, that we as individuals need a group of people to help us become who we are. Um, There's some truth in that and there's a lot of danger in that thinking. But here's the circular reasoning part I think we need to deal with because I I, I think that the, the question itself that grows out of this needs to land in our lap. If it takes a village, the obvious first question has to be, Well, what is it that requires a village for it to come about? And we could put this in a number of contexts, but we need to define what the it is because there has to be, by definition, there has to be something in there that says you don't get to it unless the village does its work. But the circular part of that begins as you go from that to the next one and say, okay, so what village? And particularly, what kind of village is it that supposedly is required for it, whatever it happens to be, to to be pulled through? You see how that's, there's a lot of murkiness in there. Very fitting for a political climate in an election season, I would say. What is it for Crestwood Baptist Church? In other words, what is it that we as a village, if you will, are shooting for? What are we trying to accomplish? Well, we could look to our purpose statements as a church. 
And I wouldn't expect anybody to be able to pass the test necessarily, although it falls on me to give you a little bit of our purpose statement. We have set it up in our Constitution. And as a church, we have adopted that. And it, and it says, this is what we are about. This is our purpose. And there are a number of statements. We, all, we started each of them with the letter E, a word that starts with the letter E, uh, to help aging preachers out to remember it. So we quote our purpose to be the exaltation of Christ. You agree with that? Okay, now that's a little, little bit careful. I mean, you all seem like you're a little cautious with that, all right? Uh, we're not voting on it today. We already voted on it, right? This is what we say we are about. Our purpose is the exaltation, worship in other words, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We are about worship. Now, is that enough explanation for you to get on board? You agree with that? Much better, much better. Thank you. We quote our purpose to be further, the equipping of the saints. In other words, we say that one of the things that we are about is to train people to, and equip people to be like Jesus Christ. You agree with that? Yeah, y'all are there. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm feeling better now. We quote our purpose to be, another one of those things, is um, <clears throat> extending the kingdom of God in our community. Another one is the evangelization, in other words, taking the good news into the community. And so we pull those two together to say, not only are we about telling people about Jesus Christ, we're also about taking who Jesus Christ was and how he acted and how he teaches us to live our lives out into the community. So we make a difference with our lives, but we also share good news with our mouths. Those are things that as a church we have said, those are pieces of our purpose. But the problem thing, I think, is that purpose doesn't necessarily answer the question. What is the it that we as a community are to be about. In order for us to get our purpose fulfillment in place, we have to start with identity. Who are we as a church? I recently asked that question to our staff. I got some interesting and mostly disturbing answers and I think they were all correct the one that stuck with me the most uh, well I won't tell you what it was but I just will say to you that that it kind of the Lord used that in my thinking and in my spirit to kind of add on to some other things that was already going on with me and, and that pushes me to today's sermon I told Kevin in the early service, he's our children's minister, that uh, today was the day that I felt like we should drop the bomb on Crestwood Baptist Church. And I don't mean the destructive bomb, but the one that has a push of an effect, not just over the next few weeks, but a definitive changing point in the life of our church. So I'm glad that you're here today. I hope that it will be something like that for you. Who are we? What is it that we are about? 
How do we get there? Today, to the day, five years ago, I stood in this very spot and preached my first sermon to this church, and you as a church issued an invitation to me to be your pastor five years ago today. You don't get the revote. And um, so for five years, we have been working within the, the structure of our church. Maybe that's really not the best way to say it, because for five years, uh, the, the majority push for me has been at the point of structure in our church. And so in five years, we've done some things to add structure here to help us handle people better. And so that has been a number of things. We didn't have a constitution that was functioning. And so as a church, one of the first things we did in our five-year time here uh, was to help the church put together a constitution. Church ratified that, and so it becomes that guiding document for us. Close in hand with that were the bylaws that we put together, and so that was essentially the first year with lots and lots of meetings to get there. But part of the bylaw process was for us to set committees in place and to begin to populate those committees. And as uh, the, the consequence of that step was to take all of the decision-making of the church out of one small little deal and just push it out into the ministry arms of this church. And so we have, for a couple of years, several years now, been working through that and trying to figure out the best way for us to do these committee things and, and, to, and to just hand the ministry out and a lot of the decision-making to that level. It's been a structure thing. We've had all kinds of policies, procedures that have had to, to, to come into place or to be ratified, modified, and then ratified for us to get things right where we function better, where we could be efficient in the way we handle stuff so that we could handle people better. We've added staff members. When I got here, within six or eight weeks, all of a sudden, I was the only staff member left. So now we have a full staff. And five years into it, it is time for a pivot for us as a church. One of my comments to some of our key leaders in those early days was that I was really afraid because of all the structural work that we had to do on the organization that I would become a structural pastor rather than a pastor who equipped and challenged our people to be all that God wanted us to be and to push out where people were. So it's time for a pivot. And that's the bomb that if we're figuratively dropping a bomb today, that's the one that I want to drop. It is the one that challenges us out of the it that we have adopted into the it that we should be. Let me see if I can hang some things out there for you. I want to start with a statement, and I know that it's wordy, and I know that it's one of those things that at first pass, uh, it might be a little difficult to get. I know that, all right? But don't worry if you don't get it, because you're going to hear this all summer long. I've entitled this series for the summer Pillars. And the reason I've entitled it that is because this is what I want us to get a handle on. Here's the statement. The values that we embrace create a culture 
that supports the identity we affirm. Now, see what I mean? I told you, that's just kind of one of those, you go, whoa, 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 slow down. And I'm going to slow down. Matter of fact, for the sermon today, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take three key words out of that statement and try to put them together for us. Here's the statement one more time. The values that we embrace create a culture that supports the identity we affirm. And so the pillars part of this is I want to address the, the values that we have as a church. As a matter of fact, I don't just want to address them. I want to call for a cultural revolution within Crestwood Baptist Church. Each week after today, we'll take a different value that needs to mark us as a church. Those values come together to create the culture that helps to affirm our identity as a church. And so if we don't get the culture right internally, we'll never get to the point where we fulfill what we're supposed to be. So with that in mind, we come to the first of those words. I want to begin with the word values. Again, the statement is the values that we embrace create a culture, et cetera, et cetera. So let's talk about values. A value is that thing that drives us. One definition of of values is a person's principles or standards of behavior, one's judgment of what is important in one's life. I came across a story to illustrate that. I came across a story not too long ago that was actually given by a guy who was a senator at the time. And it was in a magazine article, and so it's all, you know, kind of tied to an interview that he had or in, in responding to some things. And he was talking about the values of America, and in particular, the values of a particular group of students in a school in New Jersey. This was a long time ago, by the way. I'm not sure that our values have gotten better. But in this particular case, one of the students in a class that was being led by a counselor, this student found a woman's purse. And in that purse were all the, well, what goes in a woman's purse, really? Our husband's stuff. She's got my phone in her purse. She doesn't even know. So, uh, so in this purse, this girl who found it uh, discovered the wallet that had you know identification, all that stuff, and it had a thousand dollars in it. All right. So let's just do a pause in this values discussion. What are your values in a deal like that? I just got rich. Thousand dollars. So the girl took the purse with $1,000 in it and returned it to the owner. And in class, now this was a class being led by a counselor. It became an object of discussion in the class because, and this is a high school class, by the way. And so in this class, the students, every one of them, when asked specifically what they would have done with it, Every one of them, with the exception of this one girl, said, I would have kept it and not returned it. That's a values issue. Now, as if that's not bad enough, later, when interviewed, this teacher who was a counselor was asked specifically, and so did you instruct those other students as to why their response was not the right response. In other words, to keep the money and not return the purse would have been the wrong thing to do. This girl did the right thing. The counselor slash teacher responded out of her own value system. 
And her answer was, well, I could never tell them that that was wrong. That would be me telling them what to do. And the education of those students is too important for me to dictate to them a value like that. Sound like America today? Values, those persons, or excuse me, those principles or standards of behaviors, what is important in our lives, those values mark us. And they leave a very real and lasting impact and imprint on the world around us. I say it that way because it's time for us as a church to come back to some of these fundamental questions. Who are we? What is the identity that we work to fulfill or at least to support? And part of the answer to that drives us back to our values. Let me take you in. Some of you know me fairly well by this time. After five years, you know me well enough to sit at the back. Uh, you know, those kind of things. Um, but let me, for those of you who don't know me, let me just pull you in to Rotrammel family values. Let me just give you one of those disclaimers on the front end of it. Do as I say, not as I do. Well, that's not exactly right because I'm trying to do better. But here, I, the, the fact that we have Rotrammel family values was not something that was at the front of my awareness for a long time. As a matter of fact, I already had kids before it dawned on me that as Rotrammels, we had a certain set of values that we live by. Um, and it came to me one day when I was with my brother and his son. Now, my brother has three daughters and one son, which makes him a sad soul. I'm talking about the son, right? Um, but he's mean because he's got three sisters, and so something happened. I do not remember the exact context, but I remember the words because they just drove right into my head and stayed with me for a long time after that, and it caused me to do some thinking. And whenever my nephew, Eric, did what he did, my brother pulled him aside, and he said, Eric, we're road trammels. We don't do that. And I thought, well, I'm a road trammel, and I do that. But I feel guilty when I do that now that you mention it. The values, those things that, that we build our lives around, we, they, they, they give order to our thinking and our lives. So let me give you a couple of road trammel family values that I've identified through the years. Here's the first one. I already told you, these are not, these are not necessarily good. I just want you to remember the point. For, how does the saying go? Forgive and forget, but... Oh, you're supposed to stop there. Forgive and forget. Isn't that what we say? Hello, are you out there? Right? Am I wrong? Because the road trammel... I, I don't know what's right there because the road trammel family value says forgive and forget, but always remember. Now, what's the value behind that? What, what are we saying with that? What drives that perspective. It is this point of reference that says, I don't trust you. And I'll give you space to hurt me once, but I'll not give you that space again. Does that sound? 
I don't want you to know if you've seen, I don't want to know if you've seen that in me. I just want to know if you're getting the point, right? But, but that is our society, isn't it? So we've adopted part of that societal values. Actually, the better way to say it, society, uh, sociologically speaking, is our internal attitudes like that begin to inform people around us, and we start surrounding ourselves with people who believe like we do on those things. Here's the other one. Most of you will remember this, Road Trammel Family Value. Uh, I learned this early from my dad, but I perfected it when I was a youth minister. Because youth, at least the youth that I was dealing with, had this propensity towards coming at me and pranking me. You know what pranking means? For a youth minister, it means enraging him. So the Road Trammel Family Value is, you squirt me with a water gun, and how's it finish? I'll run over you with my truck. What is, what's behind that? What's the ordering of life behind that? You know, the Old Testament, there are places there that talk about an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But see, road trammels, we don't want to get even. We want to get ahead. Isn't that true of you too? Those values are those pieces of our lives that we don't really have to think about them too much, but we order our life with them. And your family has certain values, and my family has certain values, and here's where I want you to get it today. Our church has certain values. And the question of the hour, the question of the summer is, do the values that we have adopted as a church support our identity or detract from it? Whichever of those is true, the truth is with that, that the values that we have create a culture. Does our culture help us treat people well? I'm sure you're wondering if I was going to use scripture today. So we go to the book of 1 Corinthians, and let me just give you a little background on the Corinthian church here. Because Paul writes this letter, and if I kind of pointed to this when we first started, but Paul writes this letter, and if you really get down into it, you will find that Paul gets rather direct with this church. It's a sick church. They're doing all kinds of things. And what I want you to hear at this point in the message is that what Paul is doing as he writes this scathing letter to them is that he structures the entire letter not just around their behaviors, although he's going to call them out on their behavior, but he writes it so as to change their values, to expose those values that are wrong and to give them the right teaching so that they can get their values right. And Paul, through the whole thing, is concerned not just about the behavior of the church, but its impact on a lost society around them. Our society has roundly rejected the church. And one of the reasons they have is because the church culture has had bad values behind it. And so as a church, I'm not saying, especially if you haven't been visiting with us. First, I don't like the term visiting. Uh, if you're with us today, worshiping with us, we're, we're so glad that you're here. We want you to feel like you're part of this. But there again, that's part of the culture we're talking about. We want to be a church where people, no matter what's going on in their lives, no matter what their background is, no matter even if their values are not ours, they find a place to be able to step in 
and learn how to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes this letter. Here's a couple of the value problems they had. Well, actually, I'm going to talk to it first from the address that he gives to their behavior. So in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. I just got to stop. Sometimes Paul writes stuff, and I want to stop and go, really? Did you hear what he just said? Look around. We got those of you listening on the radio, watching on TV. No, we don't do any of that. Uh, If you happen to be listening to the recording of this from our website, podcast, uh, I'm going to guess that we probably have, I don't know, somewhere less than 10,000 people in here today. But you know, if we only had 10 people in here, how realistic would it be for Paul to say, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree? Sound like any church you've ever been a part of? You know, the, you know one guy, one smart or smart aleck pastor said, I would love being a pastor if it just wasn't for the people. But you know, the reality is, it's all about people. It's always about people. Your job is about people. And so Paul writes into that, and he holds the standard up. But the reason he holds this standard up is because they're failing miserably at this standard. Let me keep reading. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. If we were to continue on this topic of divisions as it relates to this particular uh, topic, uh, we would find that it goes on for several chapters. Just immediately below this, we find Paul echoing back to them. Some of you say, well, I'm a follower of Paul. And others say, well, I'm a follower of Simon Peter. And others, well, I'm a follower of Apollos. And then the really religious crowd says, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. What's the value system that is at work for that church to be divided like that? The value because I'm not hearing anything from you. I'll just tell you what I think. The value there is that I'm important and you're not. Spiritual pride is one of the worst culture items that a church could adopt. But for some reason, it's one of those that stretches through the years. The impact of that, just so you know, People come in off of the street into any given church that is divided. And it's like being at a family reunion for them. One of those torturous kind of family reunions where you just can't wait to get out. Because people are fighting all the time. Or your job where people are fighting all the time. Or what you see on TV where we have an American society that is so polarized and so differentiated in the way they see American life that any person who could possibly want to be president, I just don't get it because the job of pulling a country together seems impossible. The value of unity was missing in that church. So Paul jumps into it and he calls them out. He calls them straight out before it's all said and done. 
we could go, I don't want to take the time to do it, but we could go over to chapter 11 and we could talk about the way that they were doing the Lord's Supper and their love feasts and that kind of thing, which highlighted the fact that they had this socioeconomic problem. The division was not just by personality, but it was also a division that was driven by who made money and who didn't. Sound familiar for American society today? Maybe American society is in such a bad condition because churches have adopted bad value systems and they fail to influence the communities. What are the values that drive us? If I had to sit down with you, I guess that would, if you had to sit down with me and we were to talk about what you see as values of this church, What would you say? Second word that I want us to get is the word identity. Once again, I'll read the statement for you. The values that we embrace create a culture that supports the identity we affirm. Many years ago, a philosopher, let me stop for a second, you know, what the definition of a philosopher is, right? It's a person that you stick into a totally pitch black room and tell them, find the black cat. A theologian is just like a philosopher, except you put a theologian into a totally pitch black room and say, find the black cat, and he says, I found it. So this particular philosopher, a guy by the name of Schleiermacher, I only tell you that because I love saying the name. Schleiermacher, late in his years, who had made, you know, for his life, he had talked about, you know, just trying to understand the human condition and all these, you know, truths that are somehow out there. And I don't think there, by any stretch of the imagination, he was a Christian. I could be wrong about that. But uh, he found himself one day, late in his life, sitting on a park bench, just sitting there, contemplating, you know. Uh, and as he was sitting there, this cop noticed that he had been sitting there for a while and he looked like he was like in a trance or something. And uh, so finally the cop walks over to him and he says, hey, uh, who are you? To which Schleiermacher, the philosopher, said, I just wish I knew who I was. You know what I think? I think there are a lot of churches who wish they knew what they were. Or who they were. This is the part of our culture that actually grows out of, or the culture upholds. It is the pillars that uphold who we are, our identity. Here's the definition of identity. The set of characteristics by which a person or a thing is definitively recognized or known. Now this gets a little bit tricky because the question of identity is one that is easily confused with reputation. And so if I were to go out, let me just back it up five years and about three weeks. Because five years ago to the day I stood here and preached that sermon and you voted for me to be your pastor, but three weeks before that when we, Teresa and I felt we were confident that God was calling us here and the committee that had searched for us and Ask us to come was fairly confident that we, I hope they were more than fairly confident, but we were supposed to be here. So we were setting all those details in place. I started doing some research into this church. 
And so I began to ask people in the community outside of this church who this church was. You want to know what I found out? Yeah, so anyway, um, this gets a little tricky because this is not about reputation. This is about deciding what our identity is. Interestingly to me, Paul begins what will be an onslaught attacking the value system of the Corinthians by pointing out who they really were. It's interesting to me because, as we're going to find out as I begin to read here from verse 1, we're going to find that Paul makes statements about their identity that is stated as if it's true, but he's going to spend the rest of the book taking some of those statements and unpacking them to help those people see that they weren't living up to their identity. So here's what he says. Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me just stop there and let you see from that. Paul knows his identity. And he begins there. And he has to begin there because he's going to take on a group of people who are questioning his authority to speak into them and to highlight their problems and to highlight how they need to correct those things. There's that division in the church that has rejected him. So Paul begins with who he is. I'm called by God to be an apostle. There's authority in that. He says, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church, now here, here we go. Here's where he begins to stack up these statements of identity. To the church of God, that is in Corinth. We've already looked at some of those problems they have with division. And Paul begins by highlighting for them, your identity is that you are not the church of Paul, and you're not the church of Simon Peter, and you're not the church of Apollos. You are the church of God. That is in Corinth. Here we go again. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's an interesting word he uses here. We would expect him to use the word justified. Without getting all theological on you here, let me just highlight this one truth. The word sanctified is that part of the Christian life that occurs after you accept Christ and before you go home for eternity to be with him. Everything that happens in between is the process of sanctification. It is becoming Holy is another way to say that, or the way we like to say it, and I think the best way for us to understand it is, in that process of sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. But Paul says it as if it's a completed thing to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. If it was me writing, I would have said to those justified in Christ Jesus, because if ever there was a church who wasn't acting like they were sanctified, it was these churches. And yet Paul reminds them, this is your identity. Called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In other words, Paul says to them, to those divisions who are in there, to those up and outs as opposed to the down and outs. He says to all of them, you are not the only group of believers around, so stop acting like you are. And he says it in ways here at the beginning that just drives home their identity. We jump to verse 5. 
that, well, I better get verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Their identity, they're not living up to it. Verse 8, talking about Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has to remind them who they were. And these are ultimate truths, not only of the Corinthian churches, but of us as well. Here's what I want you to get from that. When it comes to the question of identity, we don't get a say in that. It's already said. This is our identity. We are the people of God. I heard in one Sunday school, adult Sunday school class this morning, this statement from 1 Peter. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a nation, a kingdom of priests. Paul will say later in 2 Corinthians that we are ambassadors for Christ. Jesus says it best, always. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is our identity. So we affirm that as a church. But you see, we can so adopt values that create a culture that deny that identity. As ambassadors for Christ, salt of the earth, the day that we stop reaching people for that kingdom, we are denying our identity. There's a break there that occurs. And so we create a culture that gets us there. Culture is an interesting word. I'm about to close here. Matter of fact, our musicians can come on up if you want. Let me, get, let me say the statement one more time because I don't want you to lose it. The values we embrace create a culture that supports the identity that we affirm. Culture is an interesting word. This is a wedding year for me. Uh, I, I, in, from um, October, let's say November of last year to the end of October this year, I will do more weddings in one year than I've done in the previous four since I've been here. Uh, wedding seasons happen like that with ministers. I, one, one of my times in, in South Texas when I was down there, I did 11 weddings in one summer. Okay. Um, here's the deal about culture, right? The weddings that I did in deep South Texas were driven by cultural norms, all right? Most people there uh, lived off of that culture. It's a deeply Hispanic Mexican coming out of Mexico culture where many of them in the old days didn't have the money to do a wedding for their daughter the way they wanted to, and so they would get padrinos and padrinas, and they would adopt into the wedding, and so one family would say, you know what? Uh, we will bring. We will give a Bible, and another one said, "Well, we will buy the dress." Another one said, "We'll provide the cake," and uh, my favorite, "We'll provide the cookies for the reception," and you know, just different things. But and the aras and those kind of things. And so, what happened is, I did these weddings, and I felt like a traffic cop up there, or better said, the ringmaster of a circus. 
Because not only would those people donate stuff into the wedding, they wanted to be recognized in the wedding. So I always had to call them up on stage. Well, this is Mr. and Ms. So-and-so, and they've given the artists. And so you explain all of that, and they're moving around. And I mean, you've got 40 people on stage for some of those weddings. Our culture is better for the preacher. Okay? Because the norm these days is keep it short. 15 minutes in, out, I do, she does, we are, we're gone, okay? I love those kind of weddings. It's a cultural thing, right? But here's what I want you to hear from all of that. The culture that we build comes out of the values that we endorse. And in this particular case, this culture, this set of predominating attitudes and behaviors that characterize us, have to affirm our identity. I have a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And I had to teach both of them road trammel family culture. You remember one of those values? You squirt me with a water gun, I run over you with my truck. You want to know how that translates into me teaching my son-in-law to watch his step around my house? You see, whenever two people get married, they bring, no matter what their race is, uh, they bring two different families with their family cultures and their family values and bring them together into the same room and say, now let's do life together. And many times, that is a real struggle, which is why, as a pastor and as a church, one of our values is marriage is important. It needs to be right. And so if you're going to get married by this pastor, you got to go through premarital counseling. As painful as that is, it's not nearly as painful as a divorce. But you see, the cultures of two families coming together require work. And for us as a church, as we go through this summer, I want us to work on our culture. Because we've got to handle people well. I'm going to be talking about values that I believe we need to adopt. Values like people matter, so treat them with care. Values like we're going somewhere, but we have to start here. A value like make it better, always make it better. A value like we're growing, not just growers. Those things, those values that we pattern our lives around that help us be good to people. Because I believe that this community needs us to be good with people. You know, when my grandson was born, 11 months ago now, last night Lauren was texting us trying to nail down when we're going to do his first birthday party. Pfft, who cares? He doesn't, he's not even going to know when it is. You know, who cares? He's not even going to know when it is, much less what goes on. By the way, if you're visiting, that's my wife right there. So <laughs> she said, I care. Okay. Um, anybody wants to go to lunch with us might be safer for me. Um, so here's the deal. Um, 11 months ago, our daughter was two months away from delivery 
scheduled delivery for Declan, our grandson. And we got a phone call. Uh, actually, Teresa had a number of contact, uh, contacts with Lauren through the course of the day. And finally, about 3 o'clock, Teresa called me and she said, we need to go. We need to get to Conroe or the Woodlands uh, because things are not right over there. So I left here and picked her up and we started over. We were going down with Highway 90 through China and Nome and headed uh, to Dayton. And there's a spot there that Lauren called us with incredible fear in her voice. And it had become a life-threatening situation for her and for the baby. And so even though he was still two months away from being you know, fully cooked, um, the doctor said, we got to take him now. You know, every time I drive past that spot in the road, it's just like going back to that moment for me. But you know, we got over there, and by the time we got there, Lauren was out of uh, the delivery, the C-section that was done, and our grandson was right at three pounds. He had all the pieces, all the parts. They were all working, but he was not healthy. He was so not healthy that they took him all three pounds of him and stuffed him in a box and said to us, you can't touch him. The reason they did that is because he was not healthy. So he needed to be in an environment that was conducive to bringing about health. So that box was, I guess, an incubator. I'm not sure what they call them anymore. But it was days before we could reach in and touch him and pull him out. And, and I, I remember seeing with patches on his eyes. At one point, he had an IV stuck in his head. He was not healthy. I wonder, are we healthy? Do we need to examine our values so that we create a culture that affirms our identity. Here's the reality of our world. Healthy things grow. And if we're not growing as a church, something's wrong. So we pivot. And no longer is it maintenance. Now it's about growth. And we can talk a lot and have a lot of discussion about what growth means but it doesn't mean maintenance. Let's pray. So my question to you as we go to invitation time is, are you healthy? How is it with you? One of the hardest parts for me coming out of my years in the drug world was that I had built around me a culture that fed my drug habits. So it had to change. How is it with you? How is it with us? Let me just say to you, if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ on a personal level, you haven't come to understand his love for you and the life that he offers to you, this is more than just getting a, get, a, it's more than getting a get out of hell free card. This is about life and if you don't know that life then that's the place you start you're clearly not healthy if you don't have Christ in your life 
So today, in this invitation time, I, I don't know why anybody would want to walk away from the offer that he gives. So don't walk away. It's a good time. I'm here. Aaron and Stephanie will be at the back if you want to talk with them about giving your life to Christ and understanding what that means. But many of us, maybe most of us in here have already done that. So how is it with you? Are you living up to your identity? Have you surrounded yourself with a culture that denies who you are as a Christian? value system is shot are you growing Father take this time use it for your glory and change lives today is our prayer in Jesus name let's stand and sing together